Hey everybody, this is Kim C, and you're listening to the Year of Underrated Stephen King, a one-woman Stephen King book podcast where we explore the underrated works of the world's greatest living American fiction author. Hello everyone and happy, happy new year. Happy 2021. At last, the hellscape of 2020 is behind us. I hope all is as well as can be wherever you are in the world and that this past month of winter solstice, Yule, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, I hope it all went well. So New Year's is my favorite holiday of all time. It is for many reasons, but some of the reasons I love it so much is that New Year's is a international holiday. It's a completely global celebration wherever you go, and I love that. And secondly, my favorite drink out of all of the alcoholic beverages is champagne. <laughs> um, champagne, for me, it doesn't have to be expensive, it doesn't even have to be French, which of course I know prevents it from being called champagne, but it is always what I crave. It's my go-to anytime Kim C gets a night out and it's my favorite thing to indulge in around the time of New Year's which is my favorite 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 day of the year and thankfully I am recording this episode on the afternoon of the 31st while I'm still Copus Mentis so this is right before I'm gonna break out my own champagne bottle and start well-wishing some friends and perhaps popping a few corks tonight but before I did that, I wanted to say farewell to 2020 with all of you by looking back at what we accomplished this year on the podcast as we thoroughly examined some wonderful underrated King works. And today, I would like to hand out some awards and honorable mentions for a few characters, individual stories, fun scenes, standout novels, and honor this year of underrated King coverage. So as I mentioned on the last trivia episode, I did the math and this year, friends, we read, and I promise you this was completely accidental, totally unplanned, but I'm happy to report we read 19 King titles as well as two Richard Bachman novels for the podcast. So 13 of the King titles I read for the very first time this year, which now makes my overall King book count in the 40s. So I'm kind of making my way which I'm really excited about. And then there were eight rereads of King books for me this year to round us out to 21 titles altogether. We also touched upon some briefly, others more extensively, five separate Stephen King television shows and miniseries. So we did a little TV watching this year as well as in addition to all of the other titles covered. So I'm gonna announce all the titles here in just a moment, but for this episode, I have cooked up nine categories. 
um, where we're going to have some nominees, some honorable mentions, and award the best of the category. I chose nine, of course, as it's half of 19. Trisha was lost for nine days in the woods, and there are nine innings in a baseball game. And uh, yeah, for you Norse mythology fans out there, nine is also a very significant number to the Allfather himself. I'll let you nerd out to that on your own time. But to get us going here, the 13 titles read for the very first time this year are the following. Under the Dome, Everything's Eventual, The Colorado Kid, Just After Sunset, Rose Matter, If It Bleeds, The Running Man, The Dead Zone, The Long Walk, Hearts in Atlantis, Bag of Bones, Firestarter, and Different Seasons. Arse, and then after that, secondly, here are the eight titles I read for the second time this year, and oh, what a joy they were to give another go. Lisey's Story, Joyland, Duma Key, The Institute, Revival, Full Dark, No Stars, Dr. Sleep, and The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. And lastly, here are the five Stephen King television shows slash miniseries we observed this year. The Outsider, Mr. Mercedes Seasons 1 and 2, Castle Rock Seasons 1 and 2, Rose Red, and storm of the century. So going forward, my friends, the categories listed are only going to highlight altogether approximately 26 Stephen King titles that we just lifted, listed off. So I'm not going to mention really any characters from, uh, for example, Carrie, Pet Cemetery, 112263. We are only focusing on the 21 books we investigated this year, as well as the five or so miniseries, all of those aforementioned titles. So if those are not your favorite, my apologies, but I hope that they will intrigue you a little bit. Maybe you'll learn a few things. Maybe your memory will be jogged a bit. And my ultimate goal is maybe you'll be curious enough to put them on your reading list for the 2021 reading season. All right, my guys, we're kicking off our award show with a bang, and our first category uh, that is going to be explored is Worst Villain. Now, remember, this is only the worst villain found within the 21 books we explored this year. So this is not an extension of King's body of work as a whole, only the villains observed in the novels that I just mentioned um, previously. So no Pennywise, no Randall Flagg will be mentioned because we did not read those novels. Uh, we're just gonna focus on the novels we did read and choose out of that bag. So now that everyone is on board for our top villains, I narrowed it down to five nominees. And I also have two honorable mentions for this category that I just had to give a little spotlight to. 
So let's dive in. Our first nominee is Greg Stilson from The Dead Zone. Oh, we've got Mr. Animal Murderer, Slimy, Manipulative, Friends in Low Places, and All-Around Political Liar. Our second nominee, Norman Daniels from Rose Matter. The human Cujo himself. He is a murderer, rapist, sadist, cannibal, dirty cop, and a wife beater. What a gem. And then tied for third, we have Kurt DeSander and Todd Bowden from the novella Apt Pupil in the novella collection Different Seasons. They are under the season Summer of Corruption in particular. So we have the heinous, terrible, human garbage Nazi Kurt and his impressionable, sociopathic, baby psychopath in training, Todd Bowden. So for me, I think these two are two sides of the same coin. So I'm incorporating both of them for one award because they're in my reading, locked into this fascinating yet totally disconcerting codependence that's based on murder and torture and gross, gross, gross. And then our fourth nominee, we have the infamous Big Jim Rennie from Under the Dome. He's a car dealership owner, town selectman, religious zealot, meth lab profiteer, liar, murderer, manipulator. He is the epitome of a wolf in sheep's clothing. And then lastly, we have Rose the Hat from Dr. Sleep. She is our very old, very powerful, very persuasive vampire queen of the steamhead traveling caravan known as the True Knot, who lure and devour the life-giving essence or steam from young children who have the shining. So before I announce the winner for worst villain, I have two honorable mentions for you. I really wanted to include Percy from Duma Key. So Percy is an enigma. It really, it's not the real name of this character, but I don't wanna to dive too much into my exploration because she, and it's a definite, definite she pronoun we need to use, she is at the heart of the Dumaki mystery, but she is our only supernatural villain for the most part. Um, she's kind of indefinable. She's not entirely alive, but she's impressive, very old, very sinister, incredibly dangerous. And for me this year, I believe she was the coolest representation of some dark female energy that I have thus far encountered in King's work. And her evil presence in that novel is all over it. It's just from page one to the very last page. So if you are curious about the dark feminine, please check out Percy, aka goddess of many names, many ancient roots. I really like her a lot and I think she should be explored and discussed a little more. And then my last honorable mention for worst villain is Jim Dooley from Lisey's Story. Oh my friends, okay, so this guy is creepy-rific and I believe there are, of course, a lot of Jim Dooley-esque characters within King's work. 
He represents the obsessed fan who must get close to their favorite author, must get close to their work, must possess them, consume them, destroy them. Very much like Mark David Chapman, the real-life monster who murdered John Lennon. So Morris Bellamy, a character from Bill Hodge's number two novel, Finders Keepers, is another obsessed fan um, that's reminiscent of Jim Dooley. And of course, all of these guys have roots in the soil of Annie Wilkes who is the grand dame of all the obsessed fans out there. So lots of those archetypes in King's work, but Jim Dooley, I'm mentioning him here now, because he harms Lisi in a really unsettling way, which is kind of forever burned in my mind. So I'm giving him an honorable mention of being absolute sinister human trash who definitely scared me more than I'd like to admit. So uh, yeah, Jim Dooley from Lisey Story. And the worst villain award goes to Big Jim Rennie. My friends, of course, I couldn't get him out of my mind for weeks, maybe even months after I finished Under the Dome. I actually, now that I think about it, I don't know if I was ever able to fully shake him off. He is whew, incredibly memorable for his double agent antics, super duper corrupt, all around corrupt nature, but I think Jim Rennie is a remarkable villain because King keeps him around for way too damn long and the hate the reader has for this character is pretty much at volcanic levels at the end. At least they were for me. But King gives him, I think this is what's really unique about Big Jim Runny, King gives him devout followers and unwavering support from within the town of Chester's Mill, which I think makes this villain even more despicable because rather than just a solo evil entity, this lone wolf operating in the shadows, he has dozens and hundreds of supporters who believe him and back him which is epically awful to conceptualize, and I must include him a little too close to the horrifying reality of being a US citizen, but um, Jim Rennie is layered and complex and an absolute con man with zero moral compass, zero humanity. He's a social climber. He's the absolute lord of lies to the nth power. And I hesitate, I greatly hesitate to use the word great, but I think he is a great king villain is in his resonance with the reader. At least he made an incredibly big impact on me, an impact that still hasn't been fully scrubbed from my mind. So I think that concerning the emotional effect of the reader, I must respect the literary power of such a menacing character. So, best villain of the year, and maybe a contender for one of the best all-time king villains, is Big Jim Rennie. So make sure to check out Under the Dome if you're interested in observing some unkillable, head-shaking, pure evil seeping through the page. Alright, award number two, the category is favorite leading lady. So we have five nominees and one honorable mention. 
And my first leading lady is Abra Stone from Dr. Sleep. She is the incredibly powerful teenage girl born with super, a super big dose of shine. And she forms a very close bond with our uh, favorite guy, Danny Torrance. She is the main girl that True Knot is doing everything in their power to catch. Uh, number two, Charlie McGee, your favorite pyrokinetic eight-year-old from the novel Firestarter, who just steals the show. Um, she's got these abilities much bigger than her small little self, and she's immensely cool. Number three, Rosie McClendon Daniels, our lead in the novel Rose Matter, who flees from her abuser and starts a new life in both this world as well as another world where she surprises herself and the reader with what she's capable of. Number four, Lisey Landon from Lisey's Story. She is our star and our high-functioning widow to deceased best-selling author Scott Landon. Lisey, in putting away the past, encounters the dark, bumpy road of those who will hurt her to get to what Scott left behind. And our final nominee is my homegirl, Trisha McFarland, from The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. Our nine-year-old wild woman survives over a week, completely lost in the Maine woods with only her Walkman and the Boston Red Sox games to get her through. And then my one honorable mention is Emily from The Gingerbread Girl. So I struggle to find a last name. Let me know if you guys know her last name. But The Gingerbread Girl is a 56-page short story from the collection Just After Sunset. And Emily is a grieving mother who recently lost her infant daughter, Amy. And she takes up running to cope with her pain. But as the story progresses, she must literally outrun evil along the Florida coast. Alright guys, so I actually had a really hard time with this one because I super enjoy all of these young ladies and older ladies. I think they're all incredibly strong and brave and inspiring and they carried me through each of their stories so well. But when I narrowed down a winner, I did feel a stronger pull to this female leading lady a bit more, just a tiny bit more than the others mentioned. And I was surprised. I was actually, I'm actually surprised at this winner. But the winner of my favorite leading lady is Rosie McClendon Daniels from Rose Matter. So this gal surprised me greatly. And although that novel is heavy, heavily about domestic violence, the character of Rosie changes quite a bit and really blooms into someone who's trying to embrace healing, trying to open herself up to the love from a good man, to nice friends, a new town, and um, the Rosie who enters the painting and jumps into an alternate dimension is also really surprising as that Rosie does some bold and incredibly daring things. She's channeling a lot of Greek mythology, a lot of warrior woman, Olympian goddess stuff. She's facing a lot of demons. So for me, at the end of the day, Rosie is my favorite leading lady this year. 
And as I kind of mentioned in my Rose Matter episode, she does read flat in a few areas, but I think King uses that flatness, at least in my eyes, as a greater representation of women in general, women that have been marginalized and cast down and put to the side, more specifically abused. And so I think the flatness is actually a character strength. Um, as someone who's been in prison for a very long time and just coming out into the light, learning who they are. So looking at the character of Rosie, Rosie McClendon made a huge impact on me this season. So I know, kind of, it kind of surprised me as well. Our third category is the award for favorite novella and our nominees are... Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption from different seasons under the section Hope Springs Eternal. Number two is 1922 from Full Dark No Stars. Number three is The Body also from the different seasons collection under the section Fall from Innocence. And number four, we have A Good Marriage from Full Dark No Stars. Super spooky and wonderful. Love that one so much. And then lastly, we have a really unexpected gem that I just fell super hard for. That is Mr. Harrigan's Phone from the newest Stephen King novella collection, If It Bleeds. The award for favorite novella of the year goes to 1922. All right, friends. So this is the first novella in the Full Dark No Stars collection. And for those of you who've heard my coverage on that episode, this is the very first story in the history of my life, my very first Stephen King experience. This novella started it all for me. And uh, I was around 26 years old, just finished grad school, picked up this novella collection and 1922 grabbed me by the throat, kept me turning pages, and granted I completely adore with all my heart the other novellas mentioned, but rereading Full Dark No Stars this year and particularly 1922, just slowly analyzing its construction, juxtaposition, wonderful writing. It just takes the crown for me, guys. It's my favorite novella, which was very difficult. I I absolutely love, love, love um, Shawshank Redemption 100%, but for me, 1922. It's got everything. We've got beautiful prose, immense greed, Shakespearean tragedy, gothic motif. We've got terrifying rats. It's creepy. It's poignant. It's brilliant. It's it's 10 out of 10 for me. So there are other novella collections in King's greater work still to conquer. So perhaps in time it might be knocked out of the top spot, but for now, 1922 all the way. And if you guys have read 1922 and you haven't yet checked out the Netflix adaptation, please do so. It's wonderful. And Thomas Jane is a perfect, perfect Wilford James, and it is such an enjoyable adaptation. 
But yeah, I too, I thought it was going to be Shawshank because Shawshank broke me, broke me in all the best ways. But 1922 still just melts my butter. All right, number four, our category is most disturbing story. All right, my guys. So what I mean when I say most disturbing story is really asking myself the question, would I want to read this again, given the fact the subject matter is so upsetting or something in it was so repelling? Well, uh, so interestingly enough, for this award, there is only one nominee and only one winner. Because when I look at all of the novels, all the short story and novella collections, there was only one story where I felt every cell in my body say, nope, not doing that again, not going back there, no, 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 no thanks, bye. Even though there were a few King stories that definitely had me feeling emotionally drained this year, none hold a candle. <laughs> oh god, they don't hold a candle, you guys! To the immensely disturbing, off-putting, makes me just shake my head when I think about it. And the winner for the most disturbing story is Apt Pupil from the Different Seasons novella collection, in particular, Summer of Corruption. It's our second story of the collection, and whew, guys, just icky. Like I said in my coverage of the actual uh, novella episode, I did find it psychologically of great interest. I will give it that. It was very intriguing. It did make me think. And if you can visualize those kind of scientific time-lapse videos where they show the decomposition of like a plant or a piece of biodegradable food and the camera just shows this rapid pace day-by-day -day rotting of the subject. That's how I feel Apt Pupil operates. I think the entire novella is this kind of footage that's sped up of both characters rotting. And in my actual episode of uh, Different Seasons Part 1, uh, once more, I did find it really interesting, very beguiling, and I do give it high marks for that. But overall, this subject matter of Nazi Kurt DeSander and baby sociopath eventual mass murderer Todd Bowden was just such a plummet into a very depraved environment where there is just no light, no redemption. We just sink lower and lower and lower. Yuck, yuck, yuck. So a well-written story, yes, but the subject matter was too dark for me to ever revisit unless extenuating circumstances really forced me back there. But I, you guys, I never want to read that story again, ever. Uh, for me, that is the story that will receive the most disturbing story explored this year on the podcast. It is 100% apt pupil. I know that there might be more disturbing king works down the road, but I will, I will find those in my own pace. But yeah, let us move on.
Hello everyone, welcome back from that short, awkward, unexpected breather as, you know, podcast recording shenanigans be afoot, dear Watson. So let us return to category number five, which is the novel that needs a film adaptation, ASAP, or an updated film. So my five nominees are... Number one is Joyland, because I uh, can't get enough of that beautiful novel. We need some theme park magic on the silver screen. Next, I have Duma Key, if you can picture it, my friends, all those gorgeous beach shots, the paintings, the drawings, it would be glorious. Number three, Firestarter, for all of the reasons uh, we now have with CGI. And number four, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, because I love that novel and I would love to go deep into the spooky woods with only one girl trying to survive. And then last we have The Running Man, for all the reasons. Um, The original with Arnold Schwarzenegger, in my opinion, has not aged well, so definitely needs an update. So for this award, as you guys must know already. I I really enjoy uh, all of the books and really want them to get a film adaptation and redone films right now, especially with the high-tech filming capabilities we now have. Um, the winner might be a surprise to a few. Uh, for those of you who have listened to my past episodes on a few of these titles, you know how much I absolutely adore Joyland and Duma Key, so naturally one would think I would be inclined to go there. But the winner of this category is actually Firestarter. I know. So I know that a Firestarter remake has been announced. I don't know too many details other than Zac Efron is slated to be Andy McGee, Charlie's father, and I'm really excited for that, but Whatever it is they're thinking with one film, I already want more. So, uh, picking Firestarter really surprised me, but, um, so here are my thoughts. I super loved the novel, and the Dino De Laurentiis film is really fun, very 80s, bombastic, over the top, but when it comes to Firestarter and a remake, I think that with a singular film, why not just go big or go home? And Firestarter is such a rich story. Let's get a three film deal out of it. Much like the Elizabeth Salander slash Girl with the Dragon Tattoo franchise written by Stieg Larsson, I think we could have a huge novel remake with the first film documenting Charlie as a little girl, her father Andy, them getting captured by the shop. I think it would enhance the original film, All the Things, and then we could have a second and third film showing Charlie grow up, take the path she takes, and perhaps there'll be paths on the dark side, most definitely. But my guys, she is such a fascinating little girl with an incredible power. And I think the blank canvas of this story that eight-year-old Charlie is just this super strong little person, it just is pure creative magic. 
And I wish, if I could ask a genie right now, we could have, I wish we could have a script writing contest where we get writers to explore where they feel Charlie went as she got older. Where did her powers take her? Um, for me, I think Russia scooped her up right away. I think Charlie goes bad. But if I had the creative task for Charlie's story, I wouldn't make her stay bad. But I definitely want to see Charlie at 35 and incorporating life experience, love gained and lost, wisdom, all the good things that come with growing older and her insanely strong powers, how much she can control them, all the things. So. For me, Firestarter is the one that needs a film remake stat, but not just one film, we need two films. Or what am I saying? We should get a whole limited series on one of the streaming networks and let's have Charlie's journey unfold for us season by season by season. So calling all King people out there in the industry, let's do this and I will help with story development 100%. So number six, my sixth category for our best underrated King 2020 is favorite Stephen King TV miniseries. And our nominees are HBO's The Outsider, Hulu's Castle Rock, The Audience Network, now Peacock, Mr. Mercedes, seasons one and two, ABC's Rose Red, or ABC's Storm of the Century. All right, the award for favorite Stephen King TV miniseries is 1999 Storm of the Century. Oh my gosh, guys, I loved the hell out of this one. It is so dark, so soaked in biblical illusion, and actually, now that I think of it, there was legit demons straight from the good book itself and we have a wonderful setting we've got a small town life explored deep secrets revealed and the fuse is lit from moment one it is a compelling drama the writing is top-notch and the spirit of this small town main life the dark side of the small towns and in the midst of a huge storm. Oh my god, guys, it's just incredible. I really want to have a tie for first place. Um, I'm not going to, but if I did, hypothetically, The Outsider would be right next to Storm of the Century because it is so well done, guys. Uh, please, if you haven't watched it, make sure you check out HBO's The Outsider. I think it improved the novel. The performances are excellent. It's an incredible marriage of police procedural, gritty crime drama, and then the subtle insertion of the supernatural and that element starts to saturate the story and sort of bleed into everything. And oh, guys, 10 out of 10. I did enjoy the other nominees immensely, but most definitely Storm of the Century is number one and very close, just two little tiptoes behind is The Outsider. Number seven. The category is Best Sidekick. 
So our first nominee is Red from Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. So not only is Red a terrific narrator, but he's the man who gets things for you in Shawshank. And he also forms a incredible bond and a very strong relationship with Andy Dufresne that leads Red to his own destiny. Number two, Jerome Wireman from Duma Key. So Jerome is a former lawyer, personal assistant, and he is now, uh, well, he is a former liar, and now he's the personal assistant and caretaker to Mrs. Elizabeth Eastlake. He's the new buddy to Edgar Fremantle, who he has a wonderful bromance with. And he's just a totally supportive presence, even when the chips are down and it starts to go south. Number three, I have Gertrude, uh, Gert, also Nana's, Kinshaw. So Gert Kinshaw from Rose Matter. She is responsible for this year's most favorite fight scene as she is the sidekick to all the women of the Daughters and Sisters Women's Shelter as well as an instructor of self-defense. Uh, Gert is truly larger than life, uh, literally and figuratively, but she's always on the lookout, always ready to help and protect. She is great. Number four, Billy Freeman in Dr. Sleep. So this guy is a gem, folks. He's an older gentleman from New Hampshire who helps a very down and out Danny Torrance uh, with a job, helps him establish a life in Fraser, New Hampshire, I believe is the name of the town. He assists him right away into getting work, getting plugged in with Alcoholics Anonymous. And when everything starts to go down with the true knot, Billy is right there, driving here and there, helping Danny, going to these dark places he does doesn't want to go to. Um, but Billy learns about Abra and Danny's connection and rather than freak out, he's just a good friend who's supportive and present through and through. Number five, we have Ted Brodigan from Low Men in Yellow Coats. Oh, my friends, the depths of love for this regal, mysterious, kind, literature-loving man who is such a good friend to Bobby Garfield and his friends. He's a great guy to have in your corner as a kid in 1960s Connecticut. And at least in the novels I read this year, we didn't really get a lot of good adults in the King world, especially where children are concerned. But as much as I know about Mr. Brodigan, I think he might be one of the most lovely, gentle characters who is a wonderful grandfather-esque kind of figure and I really love him. And then we have one honorable mention for best sidekick and that's Orphan Annie Ledoux from The Institute. So Annie, I don't know if she really counts as a sidekick, but she's just great nevertheless. She's the local homeless woman and conspiracy theorist. She's a very kind and gentle oddball who lives behind the police station in Dupre, South Carolina. And she definitely brings the phrase, Annie gets your gun, to life. But she's very charming and sweet and very fun to read. And the winner of Best Sidekick goes to, with 
without a doubt, Jerome Wireman from Duma Key. Oh my goodness, guys, Wireman is just wonderful. And he blazes pretty far ahead of the other candidates because Wireman's terrifically funny and charming and forms a very strong friendship with Edgar, much like two ordinary dudes would. Um, but what's unique about this is King really allows the reader to participate in that friendship with several idiosyncrasies, um, and then he even allows the reader to plug in with the squabbles and when things aren't so great. But like Samwise Gamgee to Frodo Baggins, when all hell breaks loose in both this reality and a supernatural one, Wireman is right there. He's just totally there, no questions asked. He believes Edgar, he wants to help, he's brave, he dives right into the scary bits while still keeping his authentic, genuine, comedic edge. So he will head into Mordor with you, and that's what we want in a good sidekick, but even more than loyalty, he's just authentically himself. And as someone who has, he has suffered immense personal tragedy, but tries to keep on keeping on with a sunny disposition and yeah, he just forges ahead trying to give his life some meaning. He's an amazing sidekick, guys. And please read Duma Key if you would like to plug in to a really well-written adult male friendship. Number eight, we're getting close, guys. Only two more. So our eighth category is the character who left me wanting more. We have, I believe, five nominees. Here are the characters found in this, this year's set of novels where I just was like, really, that's it? Number one, Dale Barbie Barbara from, well, Dale Barbara is his name, <laughs> but his nickname is Barbie. Dale Barbara from Under the Dome. So as far as we know, Dale is an Iraqi veteran. He's, well, he's not Iraqi. What am I saying? Dale is an Iraq veteran. Please forgive me, all veterans. Um, he is very decorated in the military, although he's really humble about it and his military past is quite mysterious. He's now a drifter, a short order cook at the Briar Rose Cafe in Chester's Mill. And when everything goes down with the dome, he's elevated to Colonel to take care of stuff. And he's elevated and promoted in like a snap. And unfortunately, there's not much else we learn about Barbie, and I am super wanting more, guys. I know it's tricky to ask that because Under the Dome has nearly 70 characters, but still, for a main protagonist, I just want to ask Steve, come on, come on, Steve, a little more with that. Number two, Mrs. Sigsby from the Institute. Is it Eleanor Sigsby? I'm not sure. I am forgetting her first name, but she's an older lady who has been leading the, ugh, the head-shaking endeavors at the Institute. Highly deplorable antics. She's been the head of them for 
decades. But what we find out is zero information about who she is outside of the institute walls, how she came to the position, how she continues to have such tunnel vision on human morals. I am definitely wanting more. I feel there was such a great open runway for backstory, but King did not give us much at all. I have a feeling it was probably to put focus on the kids on the Institute only and just kind of make it kid-centered, but I think that the story is always enhanced when we get a, a good chunk of data for the bad guy, for the most part. Uh, number three, Dorcas and Rose Matter from the novel Rose Matter. So these two are a really interesting combo as they kind of seem to demonstrate a squire and knight kind of pairing. So both women are found inside the painting that Rosie McClendon steps inside and Dorcas is the mouthpiece for her seeming, seemingly her master uh, named Rose Matter, who is this very powerful, very intimidating woman on a horse who has these commanding lines about repayment and revenge and this gal is serious business folks and in the rose matter novel i was so into both of these characters these two characters when they come on the scene it just changes the game and i would have happily gobbled up more info on both of them because for me they really crack the story wide open i was kind of slogging through um this kind of very heavy heavy subject um story and then i made it to these two and it just went completely different and unexpected so concerning these two tough females in this ancient painting world I really wanted less ambiguity and mystery with these cool warrior women. I wanted many more details. Number four, Crow Daddy from Dr. Sleep. So for the most part, if you guys have heard my episode on Dr. Sleep, I'm not. Yes, let me repeat that. Not a fan of the true not villains. Oh, my friends, I think they're silly, barely scary, very odd in general, but I did like the main True Knot members, Rose the Hat, and her right-hand man and lover, Crow Daddy. So these two had a very interesting dynamic. It's mostly sexual for the majority of their on-screen time, but Crow Daddy is hopelessly devoted to Rose, and I think devotion like that can use some expansion. Um, I think if less attention were paid to the other superfluous True Knot members, I would have liked to have known more about Crow Daddy and how he and Rose found each other, why he gives her all the power, supports her, who he was before the Knot, before Rose, where are his origins from, his country or um, how long he's been alive. So it would definitely give him a bit more depth to the story as I feel someone so close to the supervillain should have a bit more screen time. Because uh, Rose really reacts pretty intensely when Crow Daddy makes his exit from the story. So more on Crow Daddy, definitely. And then number five, our last nominee, 
is Victoria Tomlinson from Firestarter or Charlie's mom. So what we do learn about Victoria is very early in the novel when Andy McGee sees her, he absolutely falls head over heels in love the first time he lays eyes on her when they're both in the medical experiment building at the school. They signed up for some quick cash as broke college students. But Victoria is very timid, nervous. She's really nervous about sex and really beautiful. And then after the experiment, we hear that she has some telekinetic abilities. She can move a couple things, but it's simple stuff like closing your refrigerator door, etc. And then unfortunately, King does not allow her to live for very long, which is very tragic for Andy and Charlie. It does work for the story. But before this character exits the novel, can we have a bit more on her for the sake of getting to know Charlie? Or if, if you're not going to give us more Victoria, could Andy have told Charlie more details about her mother other than she was foxy and could move things every now and again? So I really wanted more on the mom and I really hope in the Firestarter remake they have a bit more content on the mom because Vicky was intriguing and her part in the Andy Victoria love that produced a seriously powerful mutant child I think needs a bit more. So that's the five and my winner, my winner for the character that left me the most hungry is Barbie all the way guys, Dale Barbara from Under the Dome. Much, much, much more info please and thank you Steve. He is a huge hero guys, he's the white knight of Chester's Mill, but this guy's backstory and veteran past, it needs some steroids. So we can really observe him as layered and perhaps not having all the answers, maybe making the reader doubt a little bit. And then also there's this potential romance with town journalist Julia Shumway. So that needed some attention too. They, you know, they toy with it, but uh, so Barbie is the winner. And I know I'm fully aware King had a lot of work um, on his plate concerning Under the Dome, but I wish more attention and more priority would have been given to one of the main protagonists. So yeah, I, uh, I'm craving more Barbie. All right, so that's all I have for that category, guys. We have reached number nine, my favorite King title of the year. So this category is encompassing new reads and rereads, and these are the nominees for the titles I most enjoyed reading this year on the pod. And out of these will be our winner, our one winner, our one ring to rule them all, at least for 2020. All right, number one, 2013's Joyland. Number two, 2008's Duma Key. Number three, 2009's Under the Dome. Number four, 1982's Different Seasons. Number five, 1999's Hearts in Atlantis. And number six, 2010's Full Dark No Stars. 
All right, my precious listeners, these are the titles where when I read them, I pretty much drooled on every page. The writing was incredible. The subjects were moving, enthralling, compelling, enchanting, perplexing, alienating, all the feelings associated with adventurous kingworks. But one title one title, guys, was absolutely a roller coaster ride in good and bad ways. And because it was such a hot and cold experience, it made me think a lot. A lot. It made me sit on the couch and stare at the wall and just feel the immense power of these stories. And this year, there is only one title that slayed me emotionally, frightened me, disturbed me, made me sob, made me smile, made me shake my head and ask myself, is he really effing going there? And that title, my guys, is 1982's Different Seasons. Oh, friends, what a treasure of King experience. All four of those stories are just incredible. Even apt pupil, even apt pupil, as much as I do love to sling mud at it, it's woven into the collection and has this absolute spell casting quality. Shawshank is an instant classic and breaks your heart. It broke me in two. It had me sobbing. The body is just... (sighs) My heart bleeds with the friendship preciousness. Uh, There's even more heartbreak, more melancholy, nostalgia, and adventure, and just grab the damn tissues now. And then you get to the breathing method, and holy hell, friends, what a knucking fut story of really intense, macabre imagery that's unforgettable. I will never forget it. So really quick, spoiler, 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 plug your ears now if you haven't read Breathing Method, but how could anybody ever forget when a recently decapitated pregnant woman gives birth in the middle of a blizzard? I mean, Are you kidding me? What? Ah! So the most hauntingly dramatic, bananas, speechless brain melt I think one could ever find. So Different Seasons has it all. And uh, oh my guys, just buckle up if you're going to read it for the first time or for the 10th time as these stories are ineffably powerful and I enjoyed the experience immensely. It is a king title that had my attention 100%. There was never a moment where I was not completely glued to these stories and it's a game changer for sure. Hell, I would even say it could be a life changer because these stories will stay with you forever. And it's akin to opening The Mummy's Tomb or Pandora's Box. Whatever flies out changes things. And I know that sounds a bit dramatic, but as a reader, 
that's how I felt after different seasons. Like I just learned some forbidden knowledge of some kind and it was awesome and I can never go back. <laughs> so, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we made it. Thank you for hanging out with me. Let's recap our final nine awards for the best underrated king of 2020. Number one, the worst villain is Big Jim Runny of Chester's Mill. The worst. It will be very hard to get him off the throne. Number two, favorite leading lady is Rosie McClendon, aka Warrior Woman of the Temple, and the late blooming Rose who is healing from her past. Number three favorite novella is the first novella I ever read from King, and lucky me, it was the terrific 1922 from Full Dark No Stars. Number four <laughs> most disturbing story is 1000% apt pupil from different seasons. I really never want to read it again, guys. Although I did enjoy certain aspects of it, the story was just too rough on my soul, too gritty, and gruesome. Number five, the novel that needs a film adaptation or remake ASAP is Firestarter. I think we need minimum a three film deal or a limited series because I want to know in depth, guys, in depth, I want to know what happens to Charlie McGee, and I think Drew Barrymore needs to cameo, but any fans of Firestarter out there, let's cook up some fan fiction in script form so Hollywood can put it in the stew pot. Let's do this. Number six, favorite Stephen King miniseries, and that is 1999's Storm of the Century, which debuted on ABC and introduced the world to Andre Linoge and his demand of give me what I want and I'll go away. Superb, excellent, darkly Shakespearean, gothic, a small town unraveling before your eyes. What a treasure it is. And please jump back to my Storm of the Century episode to hear me truly nerd out and read my favorite lines from the script. Best sidekick is main muchacho himself, Jerome Wireman from Duma Key. And then number eight, the character that left me wanting more is Dale Barbara from Under the Dome. Too much mystery with a brooding military past. I wanted so much more. And then my favorite King title of the year was the wonderfully emotional mixed bag of beautiful writing and all around craziness in terms of premises, strong delivery, gorgeous composition, unforgettable characters, and that's 1982's different seasons. Whew, that's all the awards, awards, <laughs> awards, merk. that's all the awards, friends. Oh my goodness. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful New Year's Day. I, for one, am thrilled that the 2020 mess can piss right the hell off and we're awakening to hopefully the start of the roaring 20s where we can shake off this dread and grief and a heavy wet blanket of suck and find some joy again. 
So next year, Kim C will begin her Dark Tower journey, and we also have some more underrated titles I'd like to get my hands on, such as Skeleton Crew, Four Past Midnight, Needful Things, The Dark Half, Desperation, The Regulators, Blaze by Richard Bachman, Dolores Claiborne, The Green Mile, Dreamcatcher, From a Buick 8, mm, Gerald's Game, maybe, maybe, I'm super chicken, so maybe. So let me know which ones you would like to have read first. You can bet we're going to tackle those titles as well as more titles from the Dark Tower series. As in the next few weeks, I will be back here with all of you to discuss my very first reading of The Gunslinger. All right, guys, so from the bottom of my heart, thank you to everyone who has given me a listen or two this year. Thank you to all of you who have wrote into the show and said hello and shared some feedback or some awesome additional novel knowledge with me. It's been an honor corresponding with you all, and thank you so much for listening to the show and helping me keep the sad away this year by working through these amazing works from the best author there is. I adore being part of the Stephen King fan community as everyone is, for the most part, incredibly warm and just as cool as can be. So thank you guys for helping me express my love of King a little bit during a time when the days were long and the nights were longer and my smiles were, at times, very hard to find. So I wish I could hug each one of you all over the world who have listened to the show. Ugh, I love you. Happy 2021. May it be a year of good fortune for you and may hope spring eternal. If you haven't already, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give this show a five-star rating so we can reach more King fans in the new year. Feel free to share the show with book readers, constant readers, and those who want to revisit Stephen King in the upcoming year. I am always available to chat via the social networks. We're on all of them except for TikTok. No TikTok page, but all the others uh, we are on. And the best way to reach me and probably the easiest is at underratedsk at gmail.com. I'm always checking it and I'll definitely get back to you as soon as I can. So before I go, let me leave you a quote from one of my top five King novels. This is one of my favorites from Joyland. Life is not always a butcher's game. Sometimes the prizes are real, sometimes they're precious. Oh, guys, I believe that wholeheartedly. I love you all and thank you for a wonderful year exploring underrated Stephen King works. Have a great New Year's Day. I'll see you guys in a few weeks with our first book of 2021, The Gunslinger. Take care, happy new year, and bye-bye.